Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Hey, Evan. It's our second recording today, so I get to see your face again. Uh, <laughs> for those that are listening, though, they don't know that, but that's okay. Um, how are you doing today? This I'm afternoon, right? Uh, well, this afternoon. Let's see. I have done arbitration. I've done a one-on-one with the boss. <laughs> so yeah, it's been it's been a busy day, but good, good, all in all. Uh, yeah. Well, we are, uh, for our listeners, yes, we are recording a second episode today. This is episode 15. Um, Hybrid, 100% remote, in-person. Where's revenue cycle going to lead us? Go. So um, we have some amazing guests today, I'm excited to say. Um, And I'll let, we'll introduce them and then I'll give a little more commentary about them after. Cool. Well, I get to introduce our first guest today. Uh, currently the Vice President of Revenue Cycle at Valleywise Health in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, before that, was at Legacy Health in Portland, Oregon, and uh, was the Senior Director of Revenue Cycle and led the team to be the first West Coast patient-friendly financial communication certified organization by HFMA. Wow, that's a lot. Um, and is the current President-elect for Oregon HFMA. Uh HFMA Certified Revenue Cycle Representative. Thanks, Amanda, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. All right. Well, I get to introduce our second guest. Uh, She has served in a various amount of different roles at Oregon Health Science University, or we're going to call it OHSU for all of those listeners. And she's been there for 22 years. So both of these uh lifers at from their old from the organizations amanda jump ship though um she holds a master's in health administration she's also a certified hfma um healthcare finance financial professional so a chfp for those listeners who are looking for that certification out there she's our past 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 president of oregon hfma's chapter as well and is the current vice president um, of Enterprise Revenue Cycle for OHSU. Welcome, Kelly. Oh, thanks, Evan. Happy to be here. All right. Well, um, Daniel, clearly we have a little bit of an Oregon HFMA family going on. So I was going to say, oh. I'm uh, I'm the oddball out over okay. in Pennsylvania. I'll you have to can... get some Pennsylvania reps next time. <laughs> Welcome to the family, though. Uh, and uh, Amanda and I go way back from our legacy days together. So uh, it's a little fun. Well, this is a little bit of a fun episode, um, and I recently was working late one night and uh, um, had a article pop across my desk, and I usually will read them, but usually they're a morning read versus an evening read, and I was working on getting us prepped, and I was like, ooh, this is a fun topic to talk about. So um, I sent that article to everybody for the listeners, and we'll, um, we'll put it in the actual post um, for you guys to be able to go grab it, but... We know in, in this article, they were talking about labor changes, and we're going to dive into that a little bit in our second segment here. Um, but they also talked about other industry trends that are kind of driving the industry changes in the next five years. And I thought instead of talking about the article specifically, we would get both uh, Kelly, yours and Amanda's take on where you guys see our outside of labor and how we're going to be managing labor and revenue cycle. Where What do you guys see as some of the big industry trends that are going to be upsetting how you guys do operations um, and your teams are doing operations. Yeah, thanks, Evan. I can go ahead and and kick that off. And the first thing that comes to mind, it's not a new issue at all, but it's just the growing attention to how revenue cycles better managing denials. So I'm just hearing from all my peers in the industry that it just is such a pain point. And 
The reality is we just have to work really hard and spend a lot of time getting paid for the services that we are providing our patients. And patients need that care and hospitals should be compensated for the medically necessary services that they're offering. And it just seems like in our industry, it's growing increasingly more complex and there's just a really strong desire to simplify. So, you know, we have people working really hard. We have labor that's continuing to be a problem. Finding qualified individuals to do the work is hard. The volumes are growing. So really, how do we just work smarter, not harder? And I think that one thing that occurs to me is as we hear more and more about AI and how the technology is getting better and better, I'm just going to be really interested to see if there's space in there to automate some of this process. And most recently with chat GPT, I'm just really curious to see where that goes. Cause I think there's potential that we could start having some automated response and uh, history that helps us learn the best, most successful ways to overturn denials. So I, I'm really curious to see how that kind of plays out, but certainly a, a big problem for us in the industry and, and for all my colleagues. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely something we're seeing. And we're seeing a lot more predictive denial analytics starting to take place as well to see what's going to populate and, and how we can do then what's the prevention model associated with that. So and it's a, a challenge not only for the providers, but for the payers too. And as payers get smarter with their technology and then providers have to come and try to figure out how we can be predictive, it ends up being a lot of administrative burden on both ends and takes a lot of time. So any way we can use technology to reduce that, I think is going to be something many of us are interested in. Absolutely. Well, I don't disagree with anything Kelly said. I remember right before the pandemic, um, there were some different things that payers started doing and a lot of industry leaders were saying, oh, denials are going to go up, denials are going to go up. And it was like, hmm, when, you know, ah, probably not. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam, <laughs> with all these denials, it, it came to fruition and probably worse than what anybody was expecting. Um, so I agree, denials are a pain point, um, I think probably for every organization. And it feels like sometimes we have to jump through so many hoops to be able to get what's needed in order to get the, you know, the claim paid on the first time. And often, you know, we're going back and re-looking at different parts of the claim. I think one of the things that's going to need to happen, um, which is going to be a real challenge, and I don't necessarily know what the solution is, is that the providers and payers are going to have to come together more and um, understand what the other person is doing. Because, uh, you know, I recently had a situation with a payer that, um, they have a model of per member per month. And so they had inadvertently paid us more than they intended to. And, but they didn't tell us that they were doing this new model, of course. And so we had, you know, we didn't know that they were doing it. And um, it's, it's a similar to a capitation. And so anyway, um, had we maybe connected prior to them starting this, this new process, um, we probably could have maybe prevented it. And so I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of push and pull between the providers and payers. And, um, you know, uh, it's easy to get frustrated with the payers. And uh, as a provider, I, I can say that. And I'm sure that the, the feeling's mutual. But I just think the additional collaboration moving forward will be helpful. And I do think that we're probably going to need to be able to use some um, automation to help with the process. I think, 
you know, for me, I know, agree with Kelly, there's going to be a lot more automation and that's going to help us, especially with the workforce challenges that we have. And so I know that that can be scary sometimes to frontline managers and staff who are concerned about what might be happening with their, their position because they're concerned, you know, we're going to be able to, to do it with the machine. And, you know, the reality is we need everybody and um, we need, you know, people with expertise. And so we can let the machines kind of do the lower hanging fruit, the easier things and, you, you know, repurpose our team members to be more skilled in, in things that we really need, you know, human intervention that we can't have a computer do. So I think one of the things that that makes that's exciting, but also makes me nervous is, you know, there's a lot of different business partners that ha that are, you know, trialing these tools and sharing these tools and really making sure that they do what they are supposed to be doing, but also that there's not any risk to the organization, you know, that you would know if something broke and all of a sudden stop sending, um, you know, claim attachments, for example, or something, and just how we're going to manage that going forward. It's a lot to manage with that AI, and there's a lot of checks and balances that need to be in place that can put our organizations at risk. So that's something that I've been thinking about a little bit too, especially with some new payer requirements that are coming forward. It really does seem that automation is like at the forefront of everyone's minds. We've had a few, Evan, now conversations with some AI vendors. One of the things that we've seen is, um, at least in the conversations we've had, is automation doesn't seem to be like the big like selling point. A lot of folks like sell supplementary tools. So like you have AI to be like, here's a predictive, like you should do this, but then like telling the user do this, um, which isn't like still taking the person out of the workplace. But to your point, I mean, or to both your points, um, I, we haven't had a conversation about <laughs> as much of the autom automating tools. It's more just like the supplementary helpful tools. Um, I'm curious if you all have um, ideas or are exploring any of that right now. I could open that up as an open-ended question. You know, we we haven't done much with AI at, at OHSU and Revenue Cycle. We've had some bots that we've implemented over the years to help us with some some of the work, refunds, credits, uh, additional claims, but not much. You know, we we also are very mindful of how does that message come across to our employees. And one of the things that we did as a campaign is we actually had a competition to name our bot, you know, recognizing that there's more work than we can all handle. And let's see if there's some programs we can write to make some of the work easier. But to help bring our employees along, we had a, a competition to see if we could name our robot. And that made it kind of fun for our employees. But we really haven't expanded a lot in that space. So that's why I say that that's one of our initiatives. Yeah, we're in a similar position here at Valleywise, and we haven't even implemented any bots yet. Um, that's something that we're looking at. I've only been here about eight months, so still learning everything and how um, things function together, but it's definitely something that we're working on. One of the things that we're looking at, kind of uh, two things kind of to answer your question, Daniel, is with some prior authorization work. Um, you know, and that's kind of one of the, the hot topics right now. There's so many different requirements and making sure that we get the authorization ahead of time. So there's some really great tools out there that we're looking at. Um, and also another one is with a, tools like coverage discovery, where we have the initial um, information from the patient, but really looking again on the back end to make sure there's not an additional coverage and I would really like to see us doing that maybe sooner because if there's a situation where, um, 
you need a prior author, or even like an inpatient notification with the secondary and you don't know if you don't know, you don't know, you know, so seeing what we might be able to do a little sooner. Those are some of the areas that um, are kind of top of mind for us here right now, but definitely open to other things. I think one of the challenges, there's so many different business partners that have so many different niches and you know you can't have 50 different business partners it'd be impossible to manage and so i think there's a lot of value in some of the partners that can provide multiple solutions that are you know perform well of course um, because that makes it easier and more palatable as an organization especially for our it teams as they're helping uh you know build some of these things out that they're not working with 50 different people either i think that makes it a little bit easier for us when we're kind of thinking about what we're really going to move forward with yeah i mean i definitely uh, to piggyback off of what both of you guys are saying in my interim role that i'm doing with one of our clients right now uh, you know we're definitely we're going out in a couple of weeks here to rfi to like look at workflow automation, look at uh, vendors that specialize in that just so that we can have that for the whole system to be looking at as an opportunity, coding um, automation, but not even just coding, like there's coding automation, then there's assisted coding automation, right? There's the low hanging fruit that your coding bot can actually go out and do that coding and then, or even give you the predictive of what might actually it needs to be, or that re reduce some of the work that the coders could do. And we, we had a podcast about that not long ago um, with uh, with Adeo um, a Technologies. They were teaching us about, you know, how there are bots who just code and then there's bots who go out and help you with the predictive analytics and, and around that and, and do that assisted. So it's that assisted coding device, AI device technology, machine learnable technology for the coder so that you're not your coders aren't feeling displaced, but they see the value of this thing assisting them in that regard. So um, it's very interesting what's out all out there on the market, especially around AI. We're going to dive into workflows here in, in, in a few minutes after our break, but um, I wanted to get kind of what else are you guys seeing? Like Amanda, you were mentioning more payer relations partnerships, but where are you seeing some of that also in like a legislation standpoint and things of that nature? You know, we're watching... Uh, we're getting a whole new host of, I don't know how we're all going to do it of the new pricing transparency rules um, coming out and, and, but even being able to rebuttal back to the States and do some more formal rebuttals back to legislation, but even to your payers in that regards, like they're, you know, being able to do an appeal, like not an appeal, but, you know, go back and say, yeah, we, we d disagree with this at the time that a policy is being rolled out. I think, um, you know, those are some of the things that we're seeing others starting to get more in the bandwidth of doing and in that integration between managed care contracting and, and revenue cycle relationships. But what are some of those types of things that you guys are also seeing outside of, you know, that technology component, and then the human aspect that we're going to be diving into? Yeah, I can take a stab at that one, Evan. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always thinking about is what are the things that Revenue Cycle can influence directly? You know, what are the things that we can take charge of, that we can move the needle, that we can make improvements versus where do we need to collaborate with others or collaborate with our partners to improve our workflows? And so there's some things that we're doing internally. I think we we have been very successful, actually, with starting to test the waters for some automation and authorization space and also some auto coding, auto assisted coding. So we have 
been able to significantly reduce some volumes, but we've just started down that path. So we will be expanding our scope so that we can benefit more from those automated tools and help our people. I think we're always looking at how many times do we touch a claim? How many times do we review and have a human intervene? And is it necessary or is it not necessary? And can we do anything to get clean claims out or get claims out without having to have an extra stop bill? We look at things like our coding. We have been following the same workflows for a number of years and we do 100% inpatient coding review, for example. And maybe we can start to look at how many times are we actually changing codes? How many times are we actually changing or adding diagnoses? And if we have uh, providers who are really doing a good job the first time, then maybe we can start to let some of those goes, go too and trust that it's going to work well. We've also been looking at where have we been successful in things like overturning denials? Because if we know that we do step A, B, and C and that's successful, then how can we work with our payers to say, let's get these claims paid the first time so that neither one of us is spending time or effort on these things? And is there opportunity to uh, increase our contract language? I'm hearing a lot more dialogue about what tools can we use in our agreements with our payers that help us to minimize the extra work that's happening. So some of those are the ones that are top of mind for me when I think about workflows that we can either continue to improve or, or things we need to look at for the first time that we really haven't yet. Amanda, anything to throw on there? Uh, the only other thing that I can think of that's a little bit different that we're looking at is, um, so in Arizona, we're looking at using a tool called the Vitality Index. And I don't know if others in other states are using that right now. It's a tool that um, Hive put together. And essentially, so the Hospital Association is supporting it in the state of Arizona. And um, essentially, it's de-identified claims data, so and completely de-identified, but looking at speed to pay, denials, and all that across, so we can see what's happening down the road, and using some of that information to be able to try to work with payers, because I think that there's it feels sometimes like there's a lack of transparency and we just feel like it will give us more information. Um, so I know that they're looking at doing that in other states, but they just started the process to kind of get everyone set up here. And uh, I'm really excited to see the data and see if what we really feel is factual. So I think it'll be helpful um, to see. But it, again, that's something that really is provider driven, not payer driven. So I still think there's an opportunity probably for the payers to come to the table, but that's kind of a little bit newer out there and I think might really make a big difference in starting conversations. Are these things that you all talk about at the Oregon HFMA meetings without me? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, is any final thoughts? Maybe Evan, I don't know if you have anything you want to chime in on uh, just related to your last question as well. Yeah, I mean, I think workflow automation makes a lot of sense. And I, I definitely think even when we look at like correspondence, for instance, that I, I think we all have a lot of teams spending a lot of time. And if we're, you know, leading us up into the next conversation about what's really a hybrid or a remote workforce and how we can leverage that, I think correspondence and and that paper process that we still have in, in our industry looking at how we can automate more of that um, for those staff members to 
um, either be hybrid or have the opportunity to work like the rest of their uh, colleagues is going to be key for us. So I would say that's kind of like my final thought before I run us out to a break. How about anybody else? All right, let's run to a quick break and we'll be right back, everybody. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And we're back. All right, so we're going to transition into our debate. Uh, we're talking about a couple different things today, but I'll start us out with a question. And um, I will start this for Amanda this time. Uh, so we know the labor market and uh, recruitment for like the top revenue cycle team members continues to change. Uh, what is your organization's current workforce model? And if there's any thoughts or insights that you want to share with us today? Sure. So um, we we have a hybrid model here at ValleyWise within revenue cycle. Um, there are some positions that can be fully remote. Um, and so some of it can be employee preference as well. So we have a a business office building, um, but we do have limited space. So um, it's it really kind of is employee preference. Most employees are choosing to work from home, but we do have the opportunity if somebody would like to work in the office, they can. As far as leaders go, um, we do have some hoteling private offices um, so that they're able to utilize those if they need to for conversations and, and things like that. Um, but we... Uh, for example, like our coding staff is mostly remote. Um, and so one of the things that's a little bit interesting um, about ValleyWise is our financial counselors um, are actually fully on site. So that's a little bit different here at ValleyWise than um, the model I'm used to, but it really works well with our patient population. But our business office and that type of thing, for the most part, they're remote, but they do have the opportunity to come in. It gets a little bit challenging um, because we do have some people who work out of state or even just not rural local to the Phoenix area. So it does take some time to get into work. Um, but that's our model right now. Um, it, it really kind of started. It, it kind of wasn't a thought. I mean, coding forever, but the other revenue cycle functions um, weren't really a thought. And then, of course, the pandemic and our IT team did a fantastic job here getting everybody home real quickly. And then, of course, just like everybody else, it was obvious that, you know, people could do the work at home. Um, as far as like future state, we're not looking to um, make any changes to what we're doing right now. And I know that other industries are. So I think that's something that might be a little bit more unique to healthcare than what I'm seeing in other organizations. Yeah, at OHSU, and I think similar to what you have, Amanda, your setup, Revenue Cycle includes all of our front-end patient access, registration, admitting, ED, financial counseling, uh, patient financial clearance, and then it also includes uh, revenue integrity and includes hospital billing and coding and professional billing and coding. 
So we're over 600 FTEs across those orgs. And we, you know, we used to be all in person and our, it was our coding group years ago that was the first group to go home and have that remote work. And we started to, before the pandemic, kind of dabble in the option of a few days work from home for some of our employees just for work-life balance. So we weren't unfamiliar to it. We had started down that path. And then, of course, when the pandemic hit overnight, we had to send all of our employees home. So that was a major change for a lot of our staff, particularly in the billing world, the, the billing staff. And we had three different office locations. So in, in addition to the staff that worked in the clinics on site in the hospital, we had three separate business locations for the rest of the staff. And after the pandemic and after being able to demonstrate that our productivity didn't change, we were able to sustain our productivity requirements we were able to consolidate our space to a single location. So it will help save the organization the lease expenses on on reducing by by two. And now we have a single location that's only got 80 desks. And on any given day, we have about 50 people that come in the office that their job either requires that they're in the office because it's paper or cash, or they just don't have a situation at home that's conducive to being able to work from home. But that means we have 30 hotel spaces. It's not much when you have a, a team that's as large as our team and it hasn't been a problem. So I, I don't foresee, you know, uh, us changing much, but we will continue down this, this hybrid path. And we've got a lot of employees in state, but we have more and more that are either moving out of state or as we post positions, we're recruiting from out of state. But so far it's it's working quite well for us. So before I ask the question about out of state, um, so I, I, it's interesting because, you know, coding's been around, for, was an early adopter of working from home. And, you know, the tech industry actually was the biggest adopter first, right, of going 100% remote and, and moving into that direction. But you now are starting to see the Facebooks, the Googles, and everybody's starting to require, come back and starting mm -hmm. to require their teams to come in. And it's not, they're not necessarily citing productivity. It's about more like team development and enhancements. What what are some of the things that you guys are doing to tackle that? Because you know we don't want to fall fall suit back to the same as the tech industry, where they're now becoming more of that hybrid or a requirement. And some even like Daniel was sharing a, a, when we were recording earlier today, like you know how many days a week somebody's coming into these tech buildings and things of that nature is being monitored now by some of the organizations. So it's just kind of interesting to see like that swing that they've done and are we going to follow because healthcare usually follows not far behind. So what are, what are some of those challenges that you're going to like CE um, or kind of try to have to mitigate in your guys's mindsets? Well, I think one of the big differences between healthcare and um, kind of the techie is we don't have as much money as they do. And so the fact that we're saving money by consolidating office space, I think it's going to be really hard to get a CFO to agree to open up a new office space um, for kind of tangible things like that. Although, of course, when 
employees feel more engaged and um, connected, then of course they're going to be more productive. So we've done some things here at Valleywise to try to um, kind of make sure that people stay engaged. And one of my teams um, created a, a kind of a team within their um, area called the Gratitude Warriors. And so um, there's only one leader that's part of that and the rest is all frontline staff and they come up with ideas and things to kind of keep the teams engaged in activities. And then they rolled them out and they were given a small budget and so that they can do these things. And um, so they play like online games. They have a gratitude book that they read that they discuss. You know, it's it's all optional, but a lot of people actually participate. Um, and so we've looked at that also with employee engagement scores, which is a good barometer for us to be able to test. Um, and we do that on an annual basis. And it's it, it's critical here. It was critical for me at Legacy as well, but it really is looked at by senior leadership um, to make sure, you know, that things are still going well. And um, the engagement has remained high and that team's engagement um, got even just a little bit higher. Um, so then they're rotating a few folks off the committee and a few more come on, but they come up with ideas and things that they'd like to do. And like, they'll have prizes and things um, and one of like the prizes is like they get a Starbucks gift card mailed to them. You know, it, it's something small that's tangible. Um, when it was, uh, it was in our HIM coding area, when it was HIM week, they did an art project thing together that I, I'm not artistic, but you punch these little holes and it created this thing. It was actually super cool. They mailed them out to the employees' houses, things like that. So they're trying to do those types of things to keep people um, engaged as much as they can. And then, you know, truly, if you're really missing the engagement, um, you can come to the office. But that does get a little bit strange when you have people working out of state as well, because if they're fully remote, we're not paying for them to come back in, nor are we requiring it. So that's a little bit different. But I think, you know, um, with the tech companies go back, I think that's the one differentiator to, for us is that we don't have the same money. I wish we did, but we don't. So I think the adoption might be slower and it might depend on the organization and, you know, if it's for-profit, non-profit, those types of things. You know, I think back to before we were all at home and we were in the office and I think we all had to learn how to get really good at some new technology tools pretty quickly for communicating and engaging with our peers and our employees. And I I remember being back in the office, we everything was managed via email or a phone call. We didn't even have teams and uh, the IMs. And now I realize that so many of what used to be uh, pick up the phone and talk to somebody is now a real quick Teams call and I can see people and have conversations that in the past I didn't get to see them when I was having that conversation. And I think the the uh, the IM messaging now is very much a part of how we do our work on a daily basis. And that, I can't say that it was like that before COVID for me, but I think that allows for the quick interactions and engagements. And I think people kind of are learning a new way to interact with each other and to keep close with their, their colleagues. We have had some really good creativity within our teams of developing team pages and post your pets and post your pumpkins and post your favorite recipes and they have their water cooler station where you can come and just sort of message anything that's top of mind. Uh, one of my directors implemented a, a monthly call about, I'd say six months ago, where it was just a total open forum, uh, 150 people, welcome, not required, call in, 
and just take some time to do celebrations and announcements and recognitions and open forum for Q&A with our leadership team. And I, I've been really impressed with the amount of people that are engaged and call in. I didn't know if it was something that was going to sort of dwindle off after a couple months, but every month when we call in, we've got really good attendance in that. So you can tell people crave that. People are still craving, even if I have my one-on-one touches with somebody, I still want to feel part of a team and part of a group. And so I think those kind of forums we're, we're learning how to do better. We've implemented Mentimeter as a way to do for the folks online that are quiet and they don't want to talk and they don't want to necessarily participate in front of everybody. If you can ask some poll questions and, and get some answers from the group Mentimeter is a great way to let a lot of people participate. So I'd, I'd recommend that, but we're just learning how to do things a little different. I think. We'll definitely have to be looking up what Mentimeter is. That sounds (laughs) (laughs) cool to get people engaged. It's like the word cloud kind of a tool. Yeah. I know, Evan, you said you had a question about out of state and and we should probably touch on that next. I just want to say just for one, I really enjoy that healthcare has gone remote. I think it works really well in our industry. I've worked in tech before and I don't think it would work as well there. Uh, (laughs) So I'm hoping that this is a permanent change, but that's just my two cents. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I think it opens up the doors um, to allow you actually get a wide variety of uh, labor and a wide variety of backgrounds um, from all over. So speaking of all over, um, I I want to know what are the struggles you guys are struggling with with out-of-state wor- workforce and uh, even in-state workforce with recruiting and trying to find the right people still even having a hybrid or if 100% remote type of model? I have a recent example, actually, Evan, that's top of mind for me, but we have really made everything virtual. All of our meetings are virtual. We've required very few in-person meetings. And now that work from home is a permanent solution, you can't really require in-person meetings anymore. And we just did a leadership strategic planning session. And the design of that strategic planning required that we come together, we brainstorm, we get into small groups, and then the groups come up with their own ideas, and then they present back out. And that that wasn't conducive to a virtual model. And we're not necessarily experts in how to create all the different rooms on Zoom and WebEx to break out into your own session. And and it was important to our CFO to have some in-person time together. So we did an in-person planning session. We couldn't make it required because we knew there were folks that were out of state that would not be able to attend. And so that's a that's a problem, right? You don't want people to feel left out. You don't want people to feel like they're not part of the strategic planning. And yet in that model, in-person is the most ideal model. So we had to do a lot more pre-planning to try and get materials out ahead of time so they could review and share their input. And then we're going to have to do some more follow-up with the, with those attendees that were unable to come in person so that they can still weigh in and be part of the subgroup for the post-strategic planning get-togethers. But it was definitely one of those, aha, we haven't done this in a few years and we're doing it. And it's not as easy to bring everybody back together again. So we're going to have to figure out how to get better at that. 
It's interesting, Kelly, uh, that you say not required, because there's definitely some healthcare organizations that have 100% remote workforce or even out of state, like for their out of state employees, right? Their in-state employees are near and they they can come and go in the office in that hybrid version whenever they want. Mm -hmm. But I know a couple of our clients, for instance, uh, they do require it. So if you are hired out of state, part of you getting that state wage that you are being hired, not your state wage that you live in, but the state that they're, they're, the system is in is it could be higher than what you're living in. So the expectation is when you're required to come on site, it's out of your own pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, and that could be a huge employee dissatisfier as well, but I, it, it's interesting how there's that different take even when and it happens to be an academic setting as well that I'm the one per organization I'm thinking of right off the top of my head, but how it, there's just that different thought process in mm-hmm. when you're doing that recruiting for between in-state and out-of-state. Our um, so I agree with what Kelly said. Some of the struggles that we have more with frontline staff. Um, so we don't um, allow any state. We actually have our. Um, a group that vets it for us. And they're looking at things like employment law, taxes, things like that, so that we can make sure that we're meeting the letter of the law in all the states. And um, and then, of course, states change their laws, and that makes it interesting. We had one state that recently changed where we had multiple people working in. And so the people that were already there, of course, were grandfathered in, but then we can't hire any additional folks in that state just because of how difficult it is. So that's one of the things that is a little bit challenging um, is that there are certain states that we can't hire to, um, you know, just kind of thinking in some of the states that are more heavily regulated. And um, some of the challenges are with break times and things like that, that you absolutely have to take a break before this time and after this time, or you're going to be, you know, up at at, uh, bully, things like that. And so um, I think that's that's the thing that's challenging. for us here at ValleyWise, um, I would say we have a lot of states that are included, but it's it's hard when we get somebody that looks really great, but they're in a state that is not one of the ones that's included um, because we just can't move forward with them. So we, are, I think that's one of the challenges where, you know, it's just, it can't be every state. So um, when we do our job postings, we do try to indicate what states those are, where it gets tricky is when the laws keep changing and you're going back and forth. Um, so that's a challenge, but um, we also don't require the in-person either. So, um, it, you know, yes, that makes it difficult for some things like strategic planning and stuff like that. But so far, we've made it work. We also, to try to get everybody to feel connected, especially, you know, when you're not in the state or can't come to one of our local um locations is uh, we do a quarterly revenue cycle update that everybody can tune into. And we also record that. So for folks that may not have been able to join that day and time, they can see it later. So we're trying to kind of include people in that format. And then when we do that, none of it is in person. So everybody's kind of on the same modality, which really helps because I think where I struggle is when you're in the room with some people and some people are on the phone. It's like, can you hear me? Wait a minute. Oh, somebody raised their hand. You know, that what that gets a little bit more challenging when you have the hybrid model when you're running certain meetings. So I try to stick with one or the other just to make it easier for everybody. I totally agree, Amanda. We've had the same challenges. So I think also makes the attendees feel 
more inclusive if it's either one way or the other as well. And we did, we've done the quarterly meetings, the leadership meetings as well, just as a way to keep everything top of mind. It's all virtual. Everyone calls in. I like your idea to record those though. So I might steal that. <laughs> it works great with, um, if you have teams, we did WebEx and it worked out really well too. I'm just partial to teams because I'm used to it and I'm not that tech savvy. So once I get used to something, I really like it, but it, it does work with both. I just have, I have two comments on that one. I, I appreciate y'all are like looking at out-of-state options. I've worked with some organizations that are still like not fully committed to like work from home. They're like still advertising hybrid. They're like thinking maybe someday we'll go back in office, even though I don't think that's really in their future. Um, and they keep telling me like, I can't find any talent. And I'm like, well, maybe if, uh, <laughs> if you looked out of state, it might, it might look a little bit different. Um, the other thing is we, I, I move around a lot. I I've moved like three times in the last year and our, uh, <laughs> Uh, managing partner Hank always complains to me that like uh, wherever you keep moving, the tax laws are different and everything else. So uh, I get scolded because I keep uh, causing our small company to have some headaches when it comes to uh, state taxes. So resonate here. Understood. <laughs> However, Hank wants us all to move to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently, they're easy and they're yeah, cheap or easy something. Tax I don't know. Cheap or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you ready to unlock the full potential of your medical coding team? Look no further than Adeo Technologies, the leading provider of medical coding productivity solutions. With Adeo's Gemini Solution Suite, medical coders are empowered and complemented with cutting edge tools and technologies. The Gemini Coder platform, Gemini AutoCode, and Gemini Coding Assist solutions work seamlessly together, creating efficiency and improving accuracy in medical coding. Say goodbye to tedious manual processes, cheat sheets, and memorization, and embrace the power of workflow improvements, artificial intelligence, and predictive coding. At Adeo, we believe in the collaboration between medical coders and artificial intelligence to create coding capacity that makes human coders more valuable to their healthcare organizations. Visit our website at www.adeo-tech.com adeo-tech.com to learn why we love coders and how Adeo Technologies is transforming medical coding productivity one claim at a time. And we're back. All right. Uh, we're going to move to the Wilshire Lab. We have a question or not a question, but uh, it's not a direct question from a listener today, but we thought it'd be fun uh, for our listeners to learn more about you all and get some advice. Uh, so Evan, I know you pulled this one together. Uh, we'll, we'll take a spin at it. Uh, what is one major professional accomplishment you are most proud of? Evan, I'm actually going to start with you. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Wow. I didn't know this was coming to me. Oh, I would actually say the podcast. Like, I think I've learned more in the last year of us doing this. I mean, we're on season two. We're literally six episodes away from wrapping up season two. So, and I think the variety and hearing other people's thoughts and, and ideas has definitely grown me as a leader. So I, I would think you and I, here's my like little, what are we going to pitch at a shark tank <laughs> project uh, has taught me a ton professionally. And I'm really proud of what we've been producing. So I would, I would say that that's so far. Yeah, about 30 episodes so far. Or yeah. It's been going strong. Uh, Kelly, what about you? You know, I, I know one of these days we're not going to all talk about the pandemic being our biggest memories, but really, truly, one of the things I'm most proud of 
thinking back is being really instrumental in opening up our telehealth programs. So, you know, we were trying to go down the path of opening up virtual visits at OHSU and we just were having a hard time with adoption. And literally overnight, we cut our visits in half by 50%. And we had to come up with alternative models to provide patients with care that was really safe and allowed the hospital to have capacity if we were going to need to bring in patients urgently. And so we had to turn that on immediately. And that required a tremendous lift and coordination with our physician champions, with IT, with the clinical operations, with revenue cycle, with compliance, with telehealth. So it was a tremendous body of work that was required to figure out how do we stand up virtual visits on a mass scale? And how do we meet all the criteria and and rules so that we can actually bill and get paid for these services to help our hospitals in a time of need. And there was no rule book and there were no experts and there was tons of information, but it was conflicting information because it was new to all of us. And we were able to accomplish some really big things in a very short amount of time. And one of the coolest things for me to really realize is is how easy it was once we got started and that that model of care, the patients liked it better, the providers liked it better. You know, there were some real gains in that and that was pretty cool. And as I think about one of the stories that was impactful to me is realizing that for patients to come into a hospital setting, there can be a lot of anxiety around that. You know, it's the driving, it's the parking, it's the walking, it's, am I late? Am I going to have to wait? And and they're just, you're out of your element. And virtual visits allow our patients to receive care in the comfort of their own home. And I think it exposes providers to what the patient's living conditions are and do they have lighting and do they have rugs and, you know, take me to your medicine cabinet and show me what medications you're on <laughs> if you can't remember what the what the name is or the quantity is. And and we've really learned how to provide excellent care that way. And I was just really pleased to be part of that effort. And it's it's a trend. We won't we haven't stopped our volumes. They're continuing. So I it was exciting to be part of that transition. I mean, that makes me think of uh I think we're all gonna have to have a podcast coming up on uh the new um acute home model and what that's gonna look like and how how, how that's going to be legislated and how commercial plans are already writing policies around something that nobody's really embarked fully on. So it's, it's interesting, but yeah, Daniel, let's put that on our list to research. Yeah, I can to talk, talk about. about hospital at home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Amanda. Sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think that's great. Um, I really like that Kelly. Um, I mean, sure, there's, you know, metrics and things you've improved and stuff, but I think my um, kind of best career accomplishment is um, having really high employee satisfaction scores. And um, that's really important to me um, that the team is engaged and feels supported and that type of thing. And I think that that allows us to do so much more. So for me personally, I think that's it. But I, Evan and I know worked with OHSU and all the big hospitals in um, Portland for the vaccine clinic. And just, that was, that was a really cool project as well. But I think um, employee satisfaction scores being high is, is important and critical to keeping things running in rough cycle. Absolutely. Nice job. How about you, Daniel? 
Oh, we have to answer. Run on you me. have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just a little context uh, for everyone. I, I used to work at Epic, so like I have a more IT background than um, operations. So uh, I guess for me, I went to Singapore for time doing Epic implementations there. And I just remember like there's like a 12, 13 hour time difference depending on daylight savings. And my job was mostly development work. So like figuring out how the heck scheduling and registration worked in Singapore and like using that in like a US EMR like doesn't work. And so we had to we had to do it was like four or five thousand hours of like custom development to try to get this thing to figure out. I remember being on phone calls at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., like yelling at developers like while I'm trying to get sleep as well, being like, no, we need it this way. Like they don't do it that way. It doesn't work the same way in a different country. Um, but I mean, that development now is like serving, I think like four or 5 million people um, for, I don't know how many millions of visits every day. Um, it, it, it was like a lot of <laughs> uh, late hours, late nights, but uh, I think it made an impact. So that was fun. Cool. All right. We got one last question for you guys and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would offer to an early or new? And when I say new, somebody who's transitioned into our industry um, as part of their professional growth. Oh, this one's easy for me, Evan. I'll I'll go ahead and answer. And it's to be curious, it really, truly be curious. And I try to remember back when I was early in revenue cycle and revenue cycle is extremely complex, far reaching. There's just so many intertwined dependencies with so many different operational areas and you just can't come in and know it all. It is a journey to truly learn and understand how we're all connected. And so my advice is don't be shy, ask questions, meet with your peers, interview your peers, find out what their scope is, what their purpose is, find out how they're connected to you. And it's it's like a big puzzle. You come in with your little piece of the puzzle and you don't even know that these other pieces exist until you can start to make those connections. And it's going to just really be a journey because it takes time. And then as you learn more about your own operations and how they're intertwined, my advice then is to teach others and give back to others and help them understand because we can use all the teachers that we can get in this industry. I would say network, 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 because it's always nice to have a phone a friend. Um, I reached out to Kelly earlier this week, but it's always nice to know somebody at another organization that might be going through the same thing that you're going through. Um, and they might have already solved it. Or you might say, yeah, that's actually a problem for us, too, and kind of can get together. Um, we did something similar to that with uh, when No Surprises Act came out with um with um, Oregon HFMA and had multiple organizations and, oh, what are you doing? Oh, that's a good idea. And somehow we all implemented it, even <laughs> though we thought that it was going to be impossible. Um, so I think that that, and as far as that goes, never burn a bridge because RevCycle is a very small world and everybody knows everybody. And um, uh, the amount of people that can help you is, it, it's kind of astonishing. You can, there are so many people who want to help. So that would be my advice. It's so true, Amanda, that it feels really big when you enter into revenue cycle. And then the longer that you're in revenue cycle, you realize it's a very small connected community. So a lot of helpers out there. I agree. 
trying to get off mute here. I, uh, <laughs> um, I, though, thanks for both of you all on uh, just advice. Listening today or giving us your thoughts on the hybrid remote world and everything that's coming up in the revenue cycle space. Uh, so just for our listeners, again, this is season two, episode 15. It's crazy. We're already on episode 15 uh, called hybrid, hundred uh, percent uh, remote or in-person. Where is revenue cycle in healthcare landing? Um, so just for all of our listeners, if they do want to reach out, have more questions, want to network uh, and uh, get connected with both of you. Is there any best way to do that? Amanda, I'll start with you just for our listeners. Sure. Yes, you can uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. What about you, Kelly? Yeah, same thing. Look for me on LinkedIn, Kelly Smith at Oregon Health Science University. All right. Well, this is a wrap for us today. Um, And a quick shameless plug, if you are listening and you want to submit an idea, question, uh, go ahead and send that over to our podcast. And we would actually love to have some of you listeners join us too. So um, we're calling out for topics and ideas. So please feel free to reach out. All right. Well, that's it, everybody. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group. Or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on today's episode, email us at WilshirePodcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.